Hi, I'm Bernard Leong and you may know me as the executive who has been always checking on what is happening in China for the whole of this year. And in my spare time, I'm interested to review what is happening to China as well as SoftBank in 2018. You are listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business technology and media in Asia. And today, again, I have Shai Oster, the Asia Bureau Chief from the Information to come and do this review of the year with me. Welcome, Shai, and it's great to have you back. Thanks. It's good to be back. Yes. In fact, your last review got me so many happy comments from my audience that I have no choice but to get you back on this year again. <laughs> I hope they don't hold me accountable for any predictions I may have made that haven't come true. So remember, this is not qualified uh, financial advice. This is just a <laughs> journalist. Since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Oh my goodness. It's been a busy year. We're now up to four people here at The Information, here in Hong Kong, that is. So we've expanded our bureau, expanded our coverage. We've celebrated the fifth anniversary of The Information this month, which has been really exciting. I feel like if as a startup you make it past five years, you might make it to 10. We've also been kind of watching the meltdown begin. You know, when I joined The Information two years ago here in Hong Kong, it was the good times. Everybody was just getting funding left and right, and I almost felt like I was missing the boat by not launching my own startup. And now I feel like I'm watching not necessarily the Titanic slowly sinking, but I do feel definitely the sentiment has changed so much from just uh, a year ago even to today. So yeah, you know, we've been keeping busy. I think it's also a good time for us to reflect what has happened in 2018. I think one of the interesting things that today's conversation is going to be is basically the state of China and SoftBank in 2018. We have actually identified first five events that we thought were interesting for the year and we want to get some comments and then probably I would love to get you to do another round of predictions that have no financial impact to any securities of that. <laughs> <laughs> okay, happy to. So I think the first event I want to talk about is, I call it Bike Dance is Printing Money. So my question to you, I think you have mentioned ByteDance, you know, many occasions we know them with their few well-known apps, Jingru Hotel, Douyin, and the other name for Douyin, known more globally, is called TikTok. So will ByteDance take over the world then? You know, it's interesting. So ByteDance has achieved something that no other Chinese social cultural app has managed in that it's gone global. You know, WeChat is a social network. They tried and failed miserably to take WeChat outside of China. And they've basically given up on that effort, right? They're sort of expanding into the Chinese overseas community, but they're not really trying to be a global app. Alibaba has expanded overseas, but primarily through acquisitions, right? Lazada, I guess, in Southeast Asia, or through an investment in Paytm and providing the backend infrastructure. Didi, you know, is gone into Brazil by an acquisition of 99. And I guess they're launching under their own name in Mexico. But really, taxi hailing is pretty generic, you know. But ByteDance, their innovation is that they understood that you can actually quantify culture with an algorithm too. And their algorithm makes addictive content, it turns out, not just in China, but in India, Southeast Asia, and it's even breaking into Japan. What's interesting is people talk about them now on par with the Facebook, which is really sort of shocking to hear for a company as young as it is. Facebook is sort of ubiquitous in Southeast Asia, right? You know, if people in Thailand start using Douyin or TikTok more than they use Facebook, that's a really interesting case. And it raises the question of like, okay, if it works in Southeast Asia, if it works in India, can it work in Russia? Can it work in Europe? Can it work maybe even in the US? And I think that's really fascinating. This comes to this question that I always have with different people who watch the social networking space. There's been a time where people talk about WeChat versus Facebook. And now ByteDance came out from nowhere with TikTok and it just basically swamped the market. And I think you rightfully pointed out that probably ByteDance is the first Chinese company to actually go with a product that can actually go global. But I want to step back and ask this question. The way I always see the Tencent versus Facebook problem is that they both don't want to contest on each other's borders. It's almost like WeChat is avoiding to go for a massive growth spurt by acquiring, by attacking Facebook's audience while Facebook is doing exactly the same and they totally lost the plot with WhatsApp not converting it to become a WeChat. 
Do you see that because of these two giants not doing a lot, that's why ByteDance was able to come in and suddenly just swarm the market with TikTok? No, no. I'm not sure if I agree 100% with your analysis of WeChat and Facebook. Because, for example, the marketplace now is already happening on Facebook, right? For example, I'm buying and selling used camera equipment on Facebook here in Hong Kong. So that's already beginning to gain traction. WeChat's decisions on going overseas are complicated. And what's interesting, so WeChat's own platform doesn't go overseas, but WeChat products kill it overseas, which is the games, right? You have to remember that it's sort of this funny thing where Tencent is actually primarily, or I think about half or more of its revenue comes from the games. And there it publishes the world's most successful video games, right? War of Warcraft, whatever, League of Legends, uh, I forget the roster of games. And in terms of the games, it's definitely a global player. Now, it's done that by buying overseas companies and then sort of leaving them alone, but it does have that revenue stream. And so it does have that presence. What ByteDance does is it's figured out how to revive the newsfeed, which was kind of a dead and boring product, right? Google had a newsfeed that they just sort of discontinued because they couldn't figure out how to monetize it because they didn't do the targeted advertising. But ByteDance, I think they made like three or four billion dollars in ad revenue this year, and they're predicting roughly double for next year. And that's primarily domestic ad market. And the reason that advertisers and brands use ByteDance is because of its micro-targeting of ads. And so the return on investment for an ad on ByteDance is higher than it would be in other platforms, probably because WeChat doesn't really do advertising much at all. The number of ads you see on your WeChat moments is like one or two a day. It's very restricted because they're very jealously guarding that experience, that user experience. Whereas ByteDance is doing the opposite. Also remember, ByteDance has no social network. All it has is the newsfeed part of it or the, I mean, TikTok, you could think of as kind of like an Instagram, right? It's sort of like user-generated, short content, KOLs, you know, key opinion leaders, whatever, people shilling their product, rock stars or movie stars that you follow. So it's kind of like we should stop thinking of ByteDance in terms of the newsfeed because that's been overshadowed by the success of TikTok, which now has more users than the earlier Jinra Totiao headlines today. So we should think of it as like an Instagram-like product. and with an Instagram-like product, instead of me searching for the people to follow, it gives me the people to follow. The algorithm sort of sees that I looked at this and people who looked at that have also looked at this and so it builds out this network. So it combines that with the Facebook's sort of long-tail advertising or very highly segmented advertising. And so what I've heard from investors is that advertisers find that their ROI, the return on investment in the ad on ByteDance platforms is like three to four times greater than they would get on another platform. Now. Interestingly, there is no Facebook-like equivalent in China in terms of that kind of powerful targeting for an audience, right? I don't think that Baidu's search, you know, Baidu can sort of target you by what you search for to some extent, I'm sure, you know, and WeChat certainly knows everything about you, but because the WeChat model is not primarily ad-driven, it doesn't do that. It's not going to overwhelm you. So there's actually a space for a product that does targeted advertising in China, right? And so there was sort of like a space created for a ByteDance product, kind of by the Great Firewall, I could argue. Now, the ads are doing pretty well from what I understand overseas, but I wonder if head-to-head, you know, ByteDance versus Facebook, who's a better, more efficient advertising platform? And that's really going to, at the end of the day, going to determine the success or failure of ByteDance because... They're trying to integrating social network into their platform. It's like it's one thing to become popular. It's another thing to become sustainable and sticky. And Facebook has the social network that makes it the sticky part, right? Because I have all my photos there. I communicate through people through Facebook. TikTok doesn't really have, they're beginning to move into that part of the, I guess, uh, ecosystem, but not really yet. So they've definitely figured out how to like attract pop stars to the platform. And, and also because the videos are so short that like you can sort of translate a viral meme video from China to India, from India to Thailand and, to, you know, whatever, right? It's like somebody banging their head on a watermelon doesn't really need to be culturally specific, right? a silly teenager doing a cool dance move or whatever, right? And it's, it's short enough where like you don't need to worry about cultural context so much, I guess. But I'm curious to see if their ads are going to be as effective overseas. Yeah, that's the interesting part. So given the rise of ByteDance, and they also have their missteps recently in India with fake news. I think it's only reported in the Indian news media and with very few US media. What does that mean for them then? because they're going to start having the same set of problems running on an advertising-based model 
also means that they are subjected to the same type of risk that Facebook is getting with fake news as well. Right. So for Facebook, you know, it's been surprising at how difficult it's been for Facebook to deal with this. They just keep getting their stock is hammered, their regulators are hammering them. You know, from the reporting that I've seen internally, their response has been kind of, you know, that camp fisted and just instead of trying to deal with the problem, they were trying to bury it, it seems like from the reports that I've read, I don't know. It's surprising to see how many missteps they appear to have made. The funny thing is ByteDance comes from a country where the stakes are much greater for them to make a mistake, right? If you screw up and post a Tiananmen Square Tankman video, you're gone, right? Like, and the government in China has exercised that power, right? Shutting down some of the apps that they felt that ByteDance made that it didn't like, right? The short comedy, Nehan Danza, shut it down. Not because necessarily it was political content, but it just didn't like the humor of it, right? That's, that's the thing. For me, the problems they face going overseas are not really material. Their AI is going to feed you what you want or what it thinks you want. And so that's always going to go towards the lowest common denominator, right? If you like pictures of cars, you're going to really like pictures of car crashes. And if you like pictures of car crashes, we're going to, you're going to really like pictures of corpses, right? Like that's kind of how these AI algorithms tend to work. They sort of go to the lowest common denominator. What can happen? They can get slapped by a regulator. They can get tis-tis. There's a way around it. But in China, I think the risk is much greater. This is my mantra with ByteDance is 75 billion. They're the most valuable startup in the world, venture capital-backed startup. And yet they live and die on the whim of the Communist Party. And I think the regulatory risk, as we've seen with Tencent and games, is very high in China, right? Especially in things that touch on what I call core governance issues. Propaganda, communications, is core to the Communist Party's control or how it sees control and influence and guidance. They don't see it as control, they see it as the way they guide the population, right? Like media is the throat and lips of the Communist Party. And ByteDance falls in that category. As long as they're able to accommodate what the Communist Party and the Chinese regime wants, they're fine to make money. But at some point, just as with Tencent, the government ultimately can say, ah, you're gone, right? So here lies the interesting question, right? ByteDance is basically navigating the regulatory waters of China. So with its type of content and the AI-driven advertising model, it will have to build tools to control certain content from running amok. So they can use the same technology for places like India, Myanmar, if there's a backlash on them. Whereas Facebook didn't have that problem, right? They allow everything to run amok to the point where Russians were able to exploit the addictiveness of the platform to actually target whoever they want, similar to Philippines and similar to Myanmar. So does that mean ByteDance might have a better version of Facebook? Or is it just going to be another Facebook if they don't control things properly? Oof. You know, that's, that's hard to know. What surprised me is that ByteDance didn't apply the lessons that learned domestically overseas. The fact that they actually ran into trouble with content overseas took me by surprise because they have experience with monitoring content and with dealing with local regulators and, and sort of trying to keep the platform clean. I would have thought they have an advantage, right? Because they already have to build in systems to stop unwanted content from spreading. So that was really shocking to me that they didn't immediately say, okay, this is bad. And as soon as somebody raised it, you just nip it in the bud. Because the thing is in China, there is no computer that can determine what will be censored. The whole point of the way censorship works in China is that it's arbitrary. And what is considered kosher, which is not a word they would use, but what I will use the shorthand, uh, what's kosher isn't codified. The point is that you have to always be kind of scared to publish. <laughs> always second guessing because what is okay to publish yesterday won't be okay to publish tomorrow because the lines are always shifting, almost by design, right? So Nehan Duanza was okay for a long time until suddenly somebody decided that, well, this kind of humor is not actually consistent with core socialist values of modern China. We want it done. The whole point of the exercise of authoritarianism is the arbitrariness of the power, right? That's how it's absolute, is it's arbitrary in a sense, right? So they can't design a machine that will know what the party wants next. So they have to have these backups in place, I assume, right? That's why they went on this big hiring spree of hiring Communist Party members to help with their internal editing. 
So they already have the infrastructure to handle this kind of stuff. And I was surprised that they hadn't already had that in place overseas. That kind of took me off guard. Now, in a sense, I would suspect that they could actually handle cleanup work monitoring better than a Facebook, which only now suddenly has to deal with this issue, right? And Facebook was sort of left alone for many years. And its argument was that like, well, we're a platform, we're not a publisher, we're not responsible for the content. But in China, that argument doesn't fly. Like the commerce regime doesn't care, you know, like on the legal niceties of how you define yourself, because it's not really about rule of law. It's about like, we want this, do it now. <laughs> I think this is something that we have to continue to watch because whether ByteDance is able to actually regulate its content is still an outstanding question. So I'm going to move gears and go into the second event that I think is still a very big event. We talked about it in 2018 and we're going to talk about it in 2019 as well, which is the SoftBank Vision Fund. So I think the first part of it would be in the whole year of 2018, what have you seen as the impact of SoftBank's Vision Fund? Well, you know, clearly a lot of money in the market. and it sort of created this wave of monster fundraising. It, I think, contributed to the concentration of capital in sort of rock star startups. I think a year ago, you reminded me that I predicted that maybe some other Middle East country was going to launch its own mega fund, which hasn't worked out. But there have been a bunch of other large funds raised. So Hill House Capital has a $10 billion PEVC fund. Sequoia Capital raised $8 billion. Chiming raised, I think, a $3 billion fund. GGV raised, you know, everybody's amassing multi-billion dollar funds. And what's also happening is people are betting against SoftBank. It's almost like a capitalist arms race. If I just give you an infinite arsenal, no one would even dare fight you because your arsenal is so big. Turns out to not be the case. A good example would be what's happening in Grab in Southeast Asia. You know, I think uh, maybe a year, a year and a half ago, people were kind of writing Gojek off after Grab got backing from SoftBank. But instead, people have bet against Grab, by extension, betting against SoftBank's billions by putting money into Gojek, Google, Tencent. You know, these are pretty smart players, and they see that it's not just about how much capital you have, but it's about technology and your execution. I think, you know, it's still an open question who wins, but it shows you how the thesis itself turns out to not be airtight. The other thing that's happening is that, obviously, since the murder of Khashoggi, who in my previous life as an OPEC reporter, I actually knew. At one point, he was working with the Saudi ambassador in the UK, and so we'd met a few times. You know, that just changes everything. The assumption that Masa will be able to raise follow-up funds of hundreds of billions of dollars is no longer the case. Silicon Valley isn't so moral that it's going to turn down SoftBank money because of Jamal Khashoggi, but it does make it much harder for SoftBank to raise a second vision fund. The political risk is a real consideration now. You know, there's all sorts of chatter about what the status is, what things are. The fact that there are these rumors, you know, I don't want to spread the content of the rumors, but sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Once people are nervous about you, then it's hard for you to get into deals and all that sort of stuff. When you build a fund, essentially you have one LP that's a very risky move. We were talking to some people in Saudi Arabia, and they think of the Vision Fund as a Saudi fund, and you know, SoftBank is just a manager, right? <laughs> it's their fund. And they're kind of right, right? It is their fund. That means that it's subject to the reality of Saudi politics, and Saudi politics can take unexpected turns. Here is the interesting thing, right? SoftBank has also provoked different players in different ecosystems. For example, the venture capitalists and investors are not happy with SoftBank propping up valuations. The entrepreneurs are in a tighter position. If they don't take SoftBank's money, they will go to their competitor and say, we'll fund your competitor. So you have to take the money. So it's kind of the style of even the investment is also starting to turn people off to create this competition. I will slightly disagree with you on the Gojek grab problem being in Southeast Asia because I feel that it's more a proxy war between Tencent and Alibaba rather than everyone against SoftBank. But of course, given that Alibaba always invests along with SoftBank, so that kind of competition is actually setting up. Do you foresee more competition coming up or is this just going to be how the entrepreneurs using the smart money to fight against SoftBank's big war chest onto all the other companies within their portfolio? Yes, there's some grumbling about SoftBank's money popping up valuations, but it depends which side of the deal you're on. 
if you sold to SoftBank at a high valuation, then it's a great fund, right? We've seen that with Uber. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, if somebody's willing to overpay me, I'm happy. You know, the threat that like, if you don't take my money, I'll bury you. Well, it turns out to go against Cindy Lauper, money doesn't always change everything. I'm seeing this in China with a bunch of the education tech startups that are backed by SoftBank. Tencent and others will come in on the other and back competitors. If you have a lot of capital, you also waste a lot of capital. So there's some thinking that like, okay, if I'm lean and I don't have a lot of money, then I'm going to operate efficiently. If I have a ton of money, I'm going to spend it all and I won't necessarily be efficient. Like it's kind of easy to spend money in a sense. It's easier to spend a lot of money or rather it's, it's hard to spend a lot of money effectively, right? Even venture capitalists or investors, when you talk to them, like some of them say like they'd rather not have a billion dollar fund because it's really hard to find good quality for that much money. And the same is true when you're running a business. If you're a small scale and suddenly somebody comes to you with a gazillion dollar check, it's hard to scale up without making major mistakes, right? If you're counting every penny, you're going to be super lean, super tight. And that can happen. You know, there have been situations where the lesser funded company survives because it's just always been lean. It has a high capital efficiency. And I think we're entering a downturn now. And I have some questions about like how sustainable the whole vision fund is. To me, there seems to be a little bit of weirdness internally. You know, sometimes from an entrepreneur's perspective, getting a big check is bad. And particularly also that in the past year, probably not many people actually monitoring this, but SoftBank acquired Fortress, which is a second tier boutique investment bank in New York. And what they're doing is they're starting to securitize their assets. For example, their acquisition of Arm, some of their investments in Uber and some of the other top tier companies within the portfolio into securities. It's almost like doing some financial engineering that's going to go on. So my question to you would be, will the Vision Fund still be the most dominant technology fund globally in the next year or two? Or is it going to start having competition or they even start to having their own backlash because of all this association with Saudi Arabia that will come in then? You know, what will determine that is if they can secure a follow-up fund, right? And also the internal dynamics and politics within Saudi Arabia are still so unclear. But you're right, also the securitization. So this is weird. So because the fund is the security as well, right? It's a lot of its debt. It's not a traditional VC fund where you, know, you can call on cash and it's pretty vanilla, right? Like part of the money is essentially looks like a bond, right? Because they, SoftBank has to pay sort of a fixed annual interest rate to the investors. But so you're borrowing money to buy assets that you collateralize to borrow more money, Right. That seems like, you know, you're doubling leverage. It seems a little risky. To me, it hinges on like the black box of Saudi politics, like what happens to the vision fund, right? And there's also because of the way they're securitizing their assets, we're going into a market downturn, right? What are the implications of the fall and the value of, you know, because it's, it's one thing if everything's private, right? You can just mark your book value down, but it has no real implications, right? Because it's just paper, just moving numbers on paper. But if stuff is actually actively traded, then what are the implications there? And, you know, what happens if like ARM, no, ARM is not separately traded, but like what happens if NVIDIA shares fall very sharply and NVIDIA sort of has material impact on SoftBank? And, you know, what happens if SoftBank's shares fall materially, then what's the impact there? To me, it seems there are a lot of uncertainties clouding the future that I can't really tell you what's going to happen especially because I was wrong last year. So I guess more gun shy this year. <laughs> but um, there's so much uncertainty going into this year. I think there's going to be a lot more caution in, in the market. I'm a bit worried about the startups who are now funded by SoftBank. I think we're still in the good years. And once something goes south, all these debt instrument securitization is going to start have its toll on these companies. They might be hot and then they will be suddenly forced to go public or forced to be profitable. And then that will create a chain reaction as well. So I think this is something that we probably have to watch. Then that comes to the next event. The whole year, you hear the President of the United States ratcheting up his rhetoric against China. And of course, the US and China's escalating trade tensions to an all-out trade war now. So I want to start off by asking you, you probably know this because the news has been gone everywhere. With this recent Huawei senior executive, who is also the daughter of the chairman of Huawei being held in Canada, China has also retaliated. 
do you think that all senior executives from US companies will stop dreaming to go to China in the coming years? Or even the C-suite people will not show up anymore? Yeah, you know, so there was that like weird thing that Cisco issued a travel warning and non-essential and then it sort of backtracked from it. That's a possibility. The thing that's interesting is that Qualcomm is obviously loving China these days, right? You saw that ruling against Apple in the patent dispute case. So I guess if you're a Qualcomm official, you feel very comfortable going to China. But if you're Apple, maybe you should be a little more anxious. Although it seems right now that most of the ire is being taken out on Canada. And I think the other dynamic here is that the trade war has had a profound impact on China. The fact that they've backed off from the 2025 goal for self-sufficiency and technology is an indication that things are not going well, right? You saw that some economic statistics that used to be published, I believe, out of Guangdong province, I believe is the PMI that used to come out of Guangdong province, is not being released anymore. So that to me is an indication that things are going really badly inside one of China's most important economic engines. And so I think that the Chinese are not going to make things worse because they want this problem to go away as quickly as possible. And if you saw what happened with ZTE, right, there was a lot of rhetoric and then everything sort of calmed down. There wasn't a lot of backlash. And China, like, what can they do, right? I mean, okay, you want to hit back at Apple. Okay, well, it's an American company, but employs directly like over a million people in China. Or not directly, through Pegatron and Foxconn, its contract manufacturers. But it's not just those million people who depend on Apple products, because then there's a huge supply chain that's probably multiple millions more people who are relying on Apple products to make a living, plus all the local governments that rely on Apple taxes to fund themselves. So you can't really shut down Apple because it would have a huge rippling impact. And I think the tariffs, which excluded, I believe they excluded smartphones, the tariffs already had such an impact. I think the Chinese government is very leery of making things worse. I think they really want this to go away because things are not looking so pretty, right? It's just there's an economic downturn. Global stock markets aren't doing well. The last thing they need is for this to get worse. You know what I mean? Like, yes, going after Ren Zhengfei's daughter is like going for the jugular. And I had one person, very prominent Chinese investor, tell me, you know, he called me up and said, this is war. Yeah, but what if she really did these things? What if they really were in pretty flagrant violation of the law? Like ZTE, for example, when they got busted the second time, you saw even some of the official media was like, well, you kind of had it coming because, you know, American government had busted ZTE. They reached a settlement. ZTE promised all these things. And then ZTE didn't follow through on the promises. It's kind of like, well, guys, why'd you do this? So I don't know that you know, will the government expend its political capital to defend Huawei or will it tell them, look, guys, you saw this coming. Why did you do this? The other thing that's interesting is even within the Chinese media, like on the one hand, there's a lot of nationalism, like, why are you arresting our citizens? This is clearly political. You know, obviously Trump hasn't helped with his mouthing off. But then there's been a little bit of look within the Chinese media, like, wait, so her kids are all going to school and living in Canada? And there's the question of like, what kind of passport she's traveling on? There's a little bit of a like, wait a second, what's going on here, right? It's kind of shown a light on like how China's elite all like to have one foot offshore. And it's sort of like, well, if you're such a strong nationalist, why are your kids going to school? <laughs> Which was surprising to me, right? I don't know if that's the dominant voice, but that that voice is even allowed to exist in the confines of China's censored media tells you at least that it's okay to talk about that. And the other thing is that like, these two countries are so intertwined on technology. Like, what do you do? Like, if it really gets to that point, it would be crippling for both, in a sense. So much is made in China, so much is licensed from America, you know, and in fact, within the stuff that's made in China is actually assembled from stuff that's imported from third countries, right? So to just shut that down would have really massive impact. And that also comes to another story, which was actually broken by The Intercept. This morning, I've just heard from The Intercept that Google's project Dragonfly has already been halted. So it is not going to happen. But then if let's say we take a hypothetical stance and let's assume that Google's Project Dragonfly wasn't reported in the press and there was no employee backlash, do you think that their attempt to walk back into China actually will work? Huh. I'll confess to some, not ignorance, but like I feel stupid because I'm kind of like, well, they couldn't operate a Google branded search engine. 
right? It's kind of obvious that the Chinese government would be very anxious about that and wouldn't authorize it. But I could see something where you have like another company search powered by Google, right? And why does China matter? Why does search matter? Money, right? These are not charities. It's not about connecting the world. It's not about like breaking information. Let's not buy into the propaganda <laughs> that, that Silicon Valley tells us. This is about making money. And China represents an enormous and fast-growing ad market, right? So Google wants to make money off of ads in China and also wants to like get closer to one of its big markets for Android. And it wants to figure out a way to like monetize Android, right? Which it can't now because of, you know, basically it doesn't exist. So the shape of this presence in China doesn't have to look like in the U.S., it just has to figure out a way to make money in China, right? So, okay, like we'll do a licensing agreement. Like Google's algorithms, search algorithms are top in class, right? They're probably better than Baidu. I'm not a computer scientist and I can't compare them. Although actually I do use Baidu versus Google and sometimes I find in the searches, clearly even when you're using them on uncensored searches, you get different kinds of responses. And I remember back in the day when Google was censored in China, the first time around, by the way, I remember when Google was in China earlier and it was a censored search engine and that was fine, but it still gave, I found at the time, better search results. It was my preferred search engine versus Baidu at the time let's say I'm a third tier player in the China market. And I say, wow, why don't we do a mobile search powered by Google? We're going to get a ton of users, right? Because we're going to do like a better search result in China because it's the Google algorithms, right? And then we'll get tons of ads because everyone's going to like switch from Baidu or Sogo or whatever else they're using and use us because like we've got the brand name. So it could be, I don't know, I'm speculating here. NetEase mobile search powered by Google, right? So I think that would still work, right? That's a possibility that could still exist, even with the backlash, right? We just did the story about how Google sells ads in China for Chinese companies trying to go overseas. And actually, Facebook sells more ads, even though it doesn't have any sales team. But what's happened is, so there's this whole network of third-party ad resellers, right? These local Chinese companies that will set up a, a Google ad center. And there's like this little designed by Google or authorized by Google's shop. It's targeted to like small, medium enterprises who want to like do mostly B2B business to business advertising overseas, like, you know, buy my carburetors, buy my tires, whatever. But when these centers get open and there are a couple dozen of them, like a red carpet treatment, you know, local government officials show up, Google executives show up for the ribbon cutting because the government loves it. It's like, great, you're helping Chinese companies export. Fantastic, right? So there are ways that Google is really welcome in China, even given the whole history. And so I think if they did some kind of partnership where they provided a service to a Chinese company, there's still a way in for them. I still don't find the rationale of why they want to go back into China without going through a partnership. I also have the same view that it is much easier for Google to work with Tencent, for example, because I think they are actually already collaborating together on Google Cloud services through Tencent in China. So I don't know why there's so much backlash internally on why Google should not be in China because they're losing about 30% of the global signals in the world with a Chinese market. So I think that they should have gone back in and have a duke out with Baidu because everybody's complaining about Baidu's user experience at the moment. Yeah, if Google employees all looked at themselves and said, oh, well, you know what we do? We sell ads. We're an advertising company. And no one looks at like WPP or any of the global advertising companies and says like, you shouldn't be operating in China, right? There's never been a protest outside of Ogilvy for selling ads in China, or maybe there has, but not to my knowledge, right? And so if Google employees looked at themselves and said like, well, what do I really do? Many would say, oh, okay, I'm helping bring information to the world. Sure, but how do you make money? Oh, by selling ads. So you're in the advertising business, right? It's not a comfortable thing to say <laughs> for some reason, right? Like, you know, people who make money don't like to admit that how they make money, I guess. I don't know. Since I don't, I don't make much money, I don't have to worry about this. And that's not true. I mean, journalists get on our high horses and you can, you know, send me an angry email in a bit. You know, but if Google just said, like, actually, we're just an advertising company, then the whole moral issue kind of disappears, right? Like, Google just sells ads and they sell ads everywhere, right? Like, you know, within reason, like, we're not going to do whatever. You can't sell ads for murder for hire, I suppose. But you know what I mean? Like, that's a different way to look at it. But I suppose that's just kind of not their company culture, right? 
I make the joke to my Google friends. I say, look, Google needs to grow. And if it doesn't grow another 20%, your perks, your free spa, your free food and everything will start to be gone in the next few years if Google doesn't grow. Yeah. So yeah. I don't understand why they are not doing that. Yeah, but even like Dragonfly, like again, like maybe I'm confessing ignorance, but I don't understand what Dragonfly actually is. It's just a Google search engine with the terms that are not favored by the communist government. So would that mean like they would actually, the idea was to launch a Google search page? So yep. it'd be google.com.cm? That has never been reported. Right, so that's why I'm like, what is actually the end product they were trying to build? It always felt to me that the search engine they were trying to build is actually meant for a partnership with a Chinese company yeah. rather than building it for themselves to enter into China. And I guess the Intercept had kind of muddled the waters. So it's actually very difficult to know exactly what Dragonfly was about. Yeah, exactly. So even these reports that it's dead, I don't quite buy. Because the reports are it's dead because there was a privacy issue because they were, they were looking at results from this sort of uh, cloned site they had in China that was just people were entering search terms that they were being routed through Baidu and Google was sort of monitoring the results to build its own list of, of forbidden words. The thing is though, that's a dynamic list, right? The list of forbidden words, as we spoke earlier, like what's forbidden changes all the time. So you just need to have like a government relations guy who every morning goes to the, you know, PSB or whoever, the Wang Xinban and says like, hey, what's today's list? And you just update it that way, right? You don't need an AI to do that. Like I was kind of like, just ask somebody, hey, what's forbidden today? Oh, okay, bagels are bad. No bagels. And it goes down the line. No bagels, right? So, which it kind of is as arbitrary as that, right? Yeah. And also, like, how many people were going to this website they talk about? Like, what traffic did it have? This was it, 265.com? How many people a day were going there to type in search terms? I mean, I don't know. So I don't think, I don't think we've heard the last of this yet. So I think the next thing I wanted to ask you is all the major M&A that have happened in China this year. So Alibaba Group acquires Alma at US 9.5 billion, Meituan bought Mobike at US 3.2 billion. I mean, I can go in different angles in this. One is that the bike sharing market is totally a feature, not a platform. So that's why they all collapse. And then the second thing is there's a lot of considerable consolidation of services in the Chinese market. Are you going to see more M&A happening next year then in China? Probably, but you're not going to call it M&A, you're going to call it fire sales. <laughs> so like bike sharing. Wow, that was a lot of value destruction. And a lot of bicycle pollution as well. Unbelievable, just unbelievable. Right, just the whole premise, and I bought into it, as did a lot of investors, is just nuts. Like, okay, we're going to spend billions of dollars, billions, I mean, no, did they raise billions collectively? Probably, right? The rounds were like 200 million here, 300 million there. I'm sure it tallied up to a billion dollars. So a billion dollars worth of like souped up flying pigeon bicycles with a GPS slapped on the bottom. Whoa, <laughs> like it's just nuts. When you look back on it, it's just absolutely nuts. Like the hype that went into that. So I think there's going to be still some M&A, although it's going to be at much more conservative prices, I think. Another aspect is going to happen is that the M&A will happen online and offline. So you're seeing that basically the big e-commerce giants, big internet companies are going to look for real world assets to buy, real world businesses to buy. Because in China, the bulk of commerce and transactions are still happening in the 3D bricks and mortar universe. And so people are gonna look for acquisitions there to bring in real clients, real customers, real cash flow. And I think people aren't just gonna like blindly go into businesses, then again, I'm, I'm gonna have to contradict myself, but they're not gonna go into businesses that are wholly dependent on throwing cash at people to sell a subsidized product. That said, look at Luckin Coffee. Wow, can someone explain the economics of this to me? I'm just shocked. I mean, I guess maybe it works because actually at the end of the day, it's not an e-commerce play. E-commerce is the free advertising for the retail play, which is your network of coffee chains, right? And then eventually you give away enough free coffee, or essentially free coffee, right? It must be at cost, right? It's so cheap. And plus the whole like premise of like delivering a cup of coffee is just staggering to me, right? Like, I mean, I know labor is cheaper in China, but like, you know, these delivery, what was the name of these delivery companies in, in the US um, maybe a decade ago? People were buying like a candy bar. Was it zap.com or Zoom? I forget, you know, people were buying, ordering a single candy bar. And eventually that doesn't work, right? So that was a cup of coffee, which you also have to keep warm. 
it's like dominoes with like even less of a margin. Mm. Okay, so, but I guess the play here is that like, I get you into my brand and then eventually I'm gonna jack the price a little bit. Plus I get you coming into my shop, my retail outlets. And so maybe that's the play, but that and bubble tea, explain these things to me. Like I love bubble tea. I'm not gonna stand in line for it. Do you see a rationale for Luckin's valuation? I don't know because I don't know the coffee space that well. All I do know is that all the companies that have enjoyed very high revenue and profits from China are beginning to suffer and they are all foreign companies. So for example, Apple and Starbucks, I think at least 20 to 30% of their revenue are now coming from China. I think for Starbucks, Luckin Coffee is really giving them a ride of their lives because they have been not contested for a very, very long time. Right, but how long is Luckin sustainable? That's the question that we are all trying to figure out, right? I think it depends whether next year everybody stops drinking coffee. When is the coffee subsidies over, right? The bike sharing bubble burst because the VCs and the private equity funds decided that, you know, we cannot continuously subsidize bicycles for everybody. It's almost like last year was bicycles, this year is coffee, and then maybe next year something else. If you look in the last couple of years, this is what's been happening, right? Bike sharing is the same as well, right? People have been subsidizing for taxis. And then, yeah. yeah. So yeah. the question then is, we're living in this period of free money. So I think the interest rates will go up. Then the question is, what happened to all these subsidies? It has a natural way to go, right? So it goes back into our debts. So we're just basically end up suffering in the process of that, right? Right. I mean, maybe Luckin is built for sale, right? You've acquired all these customers, right? So because you're giving away coffee at cost or free or whatever at a, at a very affordable price, whatever term they want to use. One of the biggest costs in China for any platform is user acquisition, right? So, okay, I've acquired whatever millions of users and I'm a high frequency food. People actually drink more coffee than they buy meals, I suppose. And then you kind of wait, Olama or Meituan will buy you. And maybe that's why VCs are like, look, this is going to get bought because it's a threat to Meituan and Olama, potentially, right? It's like they've already built a logistics system that's like delivering coffee. It's only a question of time before they start delivering sandwiches and once you're delivering sandwiches, you're going to start delivering other services. And so maybe this is just built for sale, mm. right? Like, yeah, I don't know. But the interesting part of Luckin Coffee, which I thought interesting, is the cost against Starbucks. Based on the coffee price cost, they seem to be pricing below Starbucks. And this actually, the model will work in Southeast Asia. I can think of companies in Southeast Asia fighting Starbucks, which are not in the top range. I can see a Luckin Coffee doing global expansion and we have coffee subsidies globally. If somebody's willing to back them, right? At some point, you got to make money, right? Yep. But it's still at 200 million now. So let's wait and see next year because if there's a fire sale, Luckin Coffin will probably be one of the first. You said it, not me. <laughs> I'm not in the business of predictions, but I think that if Luckin Coffee does not work out its unit economics, I think they will be in a lot of trouble. Like what happened to the bike sharing company? Right, right. Which also comes to the last part of the conversation, right? So everybody rushed to IPO this year. You and I talked about it a few weeks ago. And now the market has gone bearish for Chinese tech companies going public. Based on our earlier conversation, now you can have the last word. Is the trade war part of the reason why there is a bear market for the companies that gone IPO recently? For sure, for sure. Yes, for sure. There's uncertainty. SEC has kind of made noises about investigating Chinese companies listed in the US, right? It's sort of questions about like access to accounting and books that it's been contested over. And also the companies themselves have given guidance. Remember Alibaba kind of gave some, some pretty uh, sobering guidance. You know, Tencent's obviously been getting hammered, not because of just sentiment, but like their gaming licenses just aren't happening anymore. So it's not just a trade war, but there's definitely some other domestic factors that are playing into this overall worsening sentiment. And then tech in general, it just isn't doing so hot right now, right? Like there are always, you know, outliers, but broadly speaking, people are getting anxious about the hyper growth. And I think information pointed out, you know, Moore's law about memory constantly getting cheaper and cheaper it's the end of Moore's law. In a way, that's kind of a metaphor for the broader easy gains of going online. Maybe the era of easy gains are over. Does that also mean that these Chinese tech companies will actually reduce their presence elsewhere in the world as well? No, the opposite. I think the Chinese companies will push even more 
if they can, right? If, you know, some places because of whatever restrictions are going to have a hard time. But I think, so for example, like ByteDance, I think they have to go overseas because they're so exposed to regulatory uncertainty in China. And so, yeah, you can run into some trouble in India. You tweak your algorithm, you know, you, you, you hire some sensors, fine. You know what I mean? Like, so they have to diversify their risk. And for everybody in China, when competition gets really brutal back home, there's much more of an impetus to go overseas. Southeast Asia is still a really good region to go into. It's geographically closer, so it's an easier place to fly into. These are countries where things are so inefficient that you can make money and have a growth story by bringing in efficiency gains, right? So, for example, online banking facilitated by the guys at Gojek and Grab, that's a potentially really interesting story that even in a weaker economy, you might be able to make growth out of that, right? You're bringing people into the online economy for the first time, right? So you have sort of these broader forces that still play both in India and in Southeast Asia. So those are, I think, very tempting targets for Chinese companies. And they kind of feel there's overseas Chinese communities in these places for them to sort of ally with. Culturally, they're sort of in the same Asian mix, arguably. It's a lot easier to fly there than it is to like constantly jet off to New York City, for example. So I definitely think that the impetus to go overseas will actually get stronger, not weaker. I want to just add that point. I think for a lot of people, they do not know that Tencent owns five of the eight largest gaming studios publishers of content. And esports is actually taking up. I have just got back from Thailand, Vietnam in the last two weeks, and I've actually seen a lot of esports going on in those regions. I think that particular sector is actually going to grow from there. Right. So this is probably the most interesting part of the conversation you and I have to review this year on China and SoftBank. So what are the five predictions for 2019? Hmm. Let's see. So at least the two big questions are what happens to ByteDance? What happens to DD, right? Well, three big questions. What happens to ByteDance? What happens to DD? What happens to Ant? Those are kind of open questions. Can DD go another year without an IPO, given that Uber is going to list? And if it does IPO, we're going to see really what's going on in there and what's been the impact of its regulatory challenges after the murders of two women on um, rides that they got through their platform. I think that DD will IPO toward the end of next year under pressure because I think that there's going to be concerns about how long it can sustain its growth. And so people will want to exit while the story is still good. And I'm going to be hammered on that one. I'm sure I'm going to be wrong, but I'm going to make DD to IPO. Okay. ByteDance will continue to grow overseas and will start actually fighting with Facebook for market share of advertising revenue in Southeast Asia and India. But I don't think they're going to IPO. They will hold off their IPO as they continue to show strong momentum in Southeast Asia, perhaps moving into Europe and maybe even Africa, because they'll still have a strong growth story. So they'll be able to continue raising money privately. And financial, I have no idea. It's a behemoth and its valuation is extraordinary. And so for them to IPO, they need to have a good market, right? Perhaps it's so big that when the time they finally figured out all the regulatory issues, because they've been curtailed a lot in terms of fintech in China, like maybe once the smoke clears on government regulations vis-a-vis -vis fintech, maybe because of who they are, every private equity firm, every pension fund will just say, you know what, you're building the financial online infrastructure for you know, one of the world's biggest economies. It's a sure thing, even if in the short term there's some turbulence, long term it's to buy. So maybe they will list next year. I just don't know, but I think that's a certainly one to watch. And I am also curious to see what happens with Xiaomi. You know, what is going to be playing on? How will their overseas expansion play out? You know, it's a company with a lot of grit. They've been in downturns before, and they've shown themselves to be able to, to be survivors, right? You know, these are all seasoned entrepreneurs. And so maybe they're going to turn it around after all, even in a down market, maybe being sort of the affordable luxury, I guess, is kind of a way to look at them, will work for them in the overseas markets. I need number five. What's number five? Oof. Number five is this. I think we're going to have one quarter of super scary economic growth in China, followed by another wave of stimulus. And that wave of stimulus will once again send everything in a weird, crazy hyperdrive. Ah, that's a very interesting one. 
Okay. <laughs> well, that looks like a year to look forward to. So, Shai, many thanks for coming on the show, but still there's closing. So, I want to ask you, since our last conversation, what other recommendations you would like to recommend? Of course, that includes the information. Well, of course, you know, it's our fifth anniversary. I think we still have a fifth anniversary deal going on. So go theinformation.com, subscribe. We're worth your time. We are certainly worth your money. If you want to understand tech, you got to read us. We're actually just hired people. We're going to have a bureau in Washington, D.C. So covering tech policy is going to be really important this year. Really, really going to be an important topic. And we have hired some of the best people around. We're expanding our reporting reporters in San Francisco as well. So we're just going to be on fire. The information will be tearing the internet apart. Yes. So that's what I recommend. I recommend you subscribe to the information, information.com. <laughs> if you think I know what I'm talking about, you ain't seen nothing yet. I am the lowest value ad. No, I'm kidding. Um, you know, we're very excited for what the next year will bring. And I think because it's always a more interesting time when things are going pear-shaped, <laughs> And, you know, a rising tide lifts all boats. And then when the tide goes out, you begin to see who's leaking and you'll see all the skeletons that have been dumped into the ocean. Okay. What else would I recommend? My goodness. I've just been too busy to read anything other than our own website. <laughs> okay. Then I will help you with two recommendations. One is a recent episode on China Tech Talk with Matthew Brennan and John Atman. And of course, with you talking about Chinese tech companies. Ah, thank you. The bearish market. So that was the first one. The second one is the Quiet Podcast, the last episode of the third season, which is on Tencent. And I'm an avid listener to that podcast and I contributed. And they actually, for the first time, mentioned my podcast in that episode. Fantastic. And after everybody come to listen to it, it's one of the best podcasts on acquisitions that you want to listen to. And I would like to thank Ben and David for actually mentioning and I'm really honored. So last question to you, Shai, before we close it. How do my audience find you? I'm at shy at theinformation.com. My name is spelled S-H-A-I at theinformation.com. I'm also at Twitter at Beijing Scribe because I used to be there for a long time. You can send smoke signals. I don't have a fax machine. <laughs> so follow me on Twitter at Beijing Scribe and you know, shoot me an email. I'm always happy to hear from people. And I also have a telegram and signal so you can shoot me an email and then I can you know, follow up on telegram if you've got like a hot insider scoop to tell me about and uh yeah again it's shy at the information.com and my name is spelled s-h-a-i i welcome any and all comments complaints insight conspiracy theories and even tips on what you think is an area we should be writing about mm, sure you can google me at bernard leong or baidu me at liang Zhongwei. that's my chinese name of course you can of course find us on itunes Stitcher, SoundCloud, Spotify, anywhere else in the world and always write to me. And one important thing is that if you have listened to all the past few episodes, it's actually edited by a very nice lady by the name of Caroline, who I've actually started engaging someone to help me with the production because I can't do anything. So I also want to wish all my audience and also shy to you as well, uh, having a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. Amen to that. <laughs>